Welcome to Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza, a podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician, and today I'm joined by Dr. Noel Snyder. He is a program manager at the Calvin Institute of Worship at Calvin University, and he is an ordained teaching minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. We're talking about his new book, Sermons That Sing, Music and the Practice of Preaching. This book is full of insight for people who preach and for people who create worship services with preachers, that is, church musicians and other worship leaders. We're going to dive right into this conversation, starting with a time when people in Noel's church thought that the music had changed when, in fact, it was the preaching that had changed. Can we start with the story of your church job, the, the story that you start the book with? It is such a compelling entry into what are you talking about here? Sure. Yeah. And I imagine that there are many uh, church musicians, especially worship leaders, worship directors who can resonate with this. So I talk about when in my uh, church, when I was serving as an associate pastor and one of my main primary responsibilities was as a person who oversaw worship, the the worship leader, as uh, this church would have called it. And so I had the responsibility of uh, this church had established the pattern long ago of having a traditional service at nine o'clock, I think it was, and then a a contemporary service at 11. And so there was supposed to be a distinction. But even coming into that uh, church, I had been told by many people kind of on the ground uh, that the way that that worked out was that there was some differences, but a lot of similarities between those services. So then about a year into the job, I was kind of on my own as far as being a long-term installed pastor because the other pastor left, uh, the senior pastor who was much beloved. And uh, and there was a lot of grief, uh, even from me. And uh, so the congregation was processing through this um, this summer after the, the much beloved pastor of nine years left. And one of the things that happened was that um, there was a small group of people, but small and vocal and and who were. We uh, all know about those small and vocal people <laughs> with opinions about music. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you've uh, all kind of have that uh, mental image in place of who, who that might be uh, for you in, in, as individuals. Uh, and this group seemed to think that the music had changed that uh, that I had had taken a turn toward dreariness and toward the lack of energy and more traditional was was a lot of what the um, feedback was. Uh, let's let's just call it feedback. And uh, so there was a, a bit of a, a conflict about this church that the differences between the traditional and the contemporary. And uh, basically, they wanted me to do more upbeat, more more contemporary, more uh, that kind of thing. And what uh, really 
uh, flummoxed me about that was because I, I I was not aware of making any changes in in the worship music, and so there was this question of, all right, now wait a second, like how is this all of a sudden a problem? It didn't seem to be a problem before, and I, furthermore, like I thought it was actually pretty important, and I thought that I was doing my best to actually maintain that part of our worship life be, uh, until at least a new pastor comes in, a, a new uh, full-time installed uh, pastor. So uh, because I didn't think, you know, the the congregation's experiencing that much change, we don't need any more change on top of that. So I started to ask myself, now, wait a second. Now, what is it about right now that's causing this to be a problem. And on the one hand, I just kind of thought, okay, well, we're all going through grief and the music is an easy target, you know? And so, and it may have been some of that, but the, the thing that I really started thinking about, especially when I started thinking about the musicality of preaching and how, uh, how speech patterns and patterns of embodied uh, liturgical presence work. I, I just, I started to think myself now I haven't made a change in our uh, congregationals uh, in our congregational worship music, not one that I'm aware of. However, uh, there has been a significant change in the musicality of the, the worship leading and liturgical presence of our senior pastor. We had an interim pastor serving during that time where uh, the old senior pastor had left and the, and the new one had yet to be identified and called and to, to come. And so that by itself, I started to wonder how much is it that the musicality itself of that new person, that interims, speech patterns, preaching, liturgical presence, actually is producing in, for this group at least, a sense that something significant has changed in the musicality of uh, our common life. And so that's the story and the, the meaning that I made out of that story that I start the book with. When I think of, um, you know how music is often an easy target of like, oh, we need to cut the service, let's cut the hymn or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes think when people look at a bulletin, especially if the bulletin has sheet music in it or, you know, music notation or written out stanzas, it looks like there's so much time devoted to it because even your 32nd chorus at the end of, uh, you know, at the end of the passing of the piece, it looks like, well, it took up all this space. Whereas the message <laughs> gets a single line. And so the right. sermon looks like, well, you know, it's like one of those little things. And unless you're like, you know, I grew up in a Baptist tradition with really long sermons, unless you're in a tradition where the sermon is like, you know, the pride of place, you might think, oh, well, you know, it's just one of the, the things, but actually it's, I mean, of course it's really significant. I think everyone thinks it's significant, but doesn't, it, when they look at the, the pieces of a service, they don't necessarily realize how significant it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there is all, there's a, so many factors that go into that perception of uh, what's important in the service, uh, how time is used. And yeah, when you were talking about the sermon gets a single line and it can take in some congregations 40 minutes or, or maybe even longer compared to the music, which gets a lot more space. I was thinking of the announcements too, uh, the, uh, the prayers, uh, for, um, mm -hmm. for that yeah. matter. So yeah. all, especially all if they're not things. written out, it's like, here's the prayers of the people. And depending on, you know, is it the installed pastors at the interim? Like that could be two minutes. That could be eight minutes that could, yeah. And you don't really know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm wondering, could you give us just like the, the bird's eye view? 
you're talking about sermons that sing and the factors there. And when I first came to your book, I was thinking, well, you know, is he, is, is he going to talk about like pitch? Is he going to talk about like timbre? Like what? And I was, I was like, so interested and engaged with like, Oh no, that, that wasn't the focus. Yeah. Right. So the big bird's eye view of this book is to, is to say in what way is musicality a really significant part of preaching and homiletical method. And how can preachers who, especially preachers who want to look at the formative effect of their preaching, how can musicality be a, a significant lens through which to, to listen to sermons, to hear sermons, and to evaluate their uh, potential formative effect? And how, how can musical instincts then be used in preaching in, in all sorts of ways? And part of that is a personal thing. I'm a musician preacher uh, or a preaching musician. And I've kind of uh, lived in both of those worlds uh, within uh, church music and uh, within the academy. And so I wanted to, even for myself, to start to look more intently on what I was aware of bringing musical instincts to preaching, but I wanted to do a more uh, deep dive into uh, what is it about music uh, that makes it such a powerful art form and what are some of the formative effects of it? And uh, then how can preachers uh, use that musical metaphor uh, to think through it? Uh, so then the, the connections that I make uh, because there's all sorts of ways that this, uh, that the method of uh, putting these two things, music and preaching, can get very convoluted and kind of mixed up. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do is is sort those things out and make it clearer what we're talking about when we put music and preaching into conversation. And so a lot of the shared characteristics that I identify. Um, are not the ones that you would uh, typically think of, uh, pitch uh, or rhythm. Although what I do is I get through, I get to those things through a different way. So, uh, so the three character characteristics are synchrony, repetition, and teleology. And we might think of those shared characteristics as um, even more like uh, next level up. Uh, above what we would think of as the sort of the building blocks, especially of music, of uh, pitch and rhythm uh, being the, if we could simplify it, the two kind of main building blocks, uh, tonality and rhythm of what music is. But then, uh, especially in when I talk about repetition, uh, I'm talking about how tonal systems uh, systems are created. When I talk about th uh, teleology, I'm talking about harmonic tension and resolution, or melodic tension and res resolution. When I talk really about really what you're talking about is the gospel, and we're we're going to read this because like there's this line where you're like, oh, and what you really are getting to is yes, <laughs> like right. yes, 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 <laughs> yes. I know, and and. Uh, I was helped along by that by uh, I'm drawing a lot on on Jeremy Begbie's 
theology of uh, how he looks uh, at music as a way to get at uh, certain theological themes that can be understood better when we understand them in a musical way, in a musical mode. And then, so yeah, so when I talk about synchrony, uh, I'm talking about uh, rhythm and how that uh, carries people along rhythm and meter and how that uh, can uh, produce this moment of communal synchrony. Can we talk about repetition first? Yes. I'm thinking about, you explain the difference between being banal or boring and spiritual significance. And Mm. later on in the book, um, you're talking about being predictable versus cliche. Mm -hmm. And, and I, it made me think of something that I've, I've experienced in sermons before where the preacher says something that I have heard a billion, million times having grown up the church. You should love your neighbor. Um, (laughs) God loves you. You know, like, like, you know, the things that we have heard over and over. And yet I heard it in a way that was like, Oh, Oh yes, I should love my neighbor. You know, mm-hmm. like, like in this, in, and in, in a way that like, uh, you know, like, you know, the, the heart being strangely warmed that yeah. type of like, ah, yes. And, you know, of course we experienced that in music where it's like, oh, and we got to the major cadence. Oh, ah, <laughs> you know, and yes, of course that could be really banal, but, I, um, just the way that you talk about that is so like, oh, okay. I get, I get what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's some really interesting connections there uh, and you've started to uh, elaborate on some of them. And, uh, and, and it begins with this question that uh, Jeremy Begbie in his book, uh, Theology, Music and Time, uh, really analyzes a lot, um, uh, pretty in depth. This question of how can music uh, be so repetitive um, and basically draw upon repetition as one of the primary ways that it m- sort of makes meaning out of sound. Um, it, 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 there's so much repetition that is necessary for people to, uh, to listen and make meaning uh, and kind of stay with a, a piece of music. Uh, you, you, I mean, uh, the levels on which this repetition happens uh, all si- uh, simultaneously is pretty amazing to look at with music. And so this question of how how does music stay interesting then? And one of the primary ways that Begbie gets at this is to talk about the musical matrix. So uh, uh, throughout uh, the course of a, of a piece of music, as you're going through it, uh, you have these repetitive elements, but these elements are happening at different points in these waves of tension and revolution, uh, resolution that are happening on smaller levels and then ever larger levels and then ever larger levels of the, of the piece as a whole. And so if you draw a straight line uh, down through these uh, these overlapping waves of tension and resolution, you'll notice that any given point where you repeat something, uh, you're you're going to have that happen at different, uh, it's going to intersect those arcs of tension and resolution at different points on those uh, on those arcs. And so there's this really interesting thing that music can do in uh, enabling that to happen. And that's one of the ways that music can uh, be so repetitive and yet can be heard in such a way that it seems new and fresh. And uh, furthermore, great mu- uh, musical performers are those that can f- kind of instinctively feel and, and have had uh, developed over time the those instincts for avoiding cliche if if they feel like there's something that's really predictable 
in in the way that a harmonic uh, harmonic resolution happens or a melodic element uh, that there's performative things that that ha- that can offset that predictability and keep the keep the piece of music interesting all that is to say that all those insights can then be applied into uh, preaching moments where uh, you have preachers uh, saying uh, basically the same thing, like you said, uh, uh, preaching uh, very similar messages about God's love or how we are to love our neighbors, and yet are able to kind of develop that idea in such a way uh, that it becomes heard in a new way, whether that's through story, whether that's through uh, turns of phrase that help to get at it in a different way. You can even think about sometimes repetition uh, with words, at least, as being as happening in so many different ways. And one of the ways is to to use antithesis. You say what you mean, and then you say the opposite of it, uh, or you negate the opposite. You sort of use a double negative in uh, to get at a restatement. And there's a lot of those things that can uh, be drawn from how music is repetitive that uh, preachers, I think, can really um, take hold of as well. It's like the whole, uh, like the 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 shape of it. Um, mm. Yeah. Right. And, and as a musician, I'm, I'm wondering how uh, some of the things that you were thinking about uh, when you were seeing how I was drawing those connections. I was thinking about how um, in my weekly programming, I think about, I don't necessarily think about keys, but I think about moods and recurring moods mm-hmm. uh, or emotions and a thing. But then thinking about this whole, like being predictable or, oh, we do it every week. And on one hand, there are some things that you want to do every week because then the little children will be able to sing it. Right. Yeah. But yeah. on the other hand, you don't want to do something every week so much that it, it is, uh, you know, the, the, the cliche, the like, Oh, yep. There we go again. Yeah. We're, we're doing our, we're doing our thing that we do every single week and how, um, like as an organist, like, okay, I'll play that. You know, when I was in an Episcopal church, I'll play that same Sanctus every single week but then I vary the harmony to it. So that yeah. the person who can sing the melody and they know that, but then you, you, you have the repetition, but you vary alongside of it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. totally something people do in, in sermons. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that you can relate to that connection there. Yeah. Uh, the uh, that, that is uh, of course, one of the key features of musical repetition is that along with this uh, metrical matrix that I was just talking about, that can be kind of abstract, but one of the things that you can actually identify even more clearly is those variations in timbre, those variations in uh, if the melody is repetitive, the harmony gets varied. And so um, musicians, whether on the performative or on the compositional level, um, are those the, the most skilled musicians know how to have that right combination of variation and sameness. And, and preachers can learn that as well. One of the other things that I loved about the, writing that chapter on, um, on repetition is uh, thinking about uh, the deep repetition of music. Uh, music, uh, tonal Western music draws upon a tonal system, which is basically statistical learning uh, in the same way that uh, we pick up a language. You are surrounded by this sonic environment where there's certain patterns that recur and certain tensions and resolutions that are, are more or less predictable. 
And uh, in, in, able to, in, in order to hear music as music, you have to have a sense of that tonal system. And I talked about the theological tonal systems that uh, preachers can think about um, creating through uh, repetition over time and using a, a musical metaphor to, to think about that. What are those things that we want to uh, actually uh, almost uh, put ourselves as preachers, at least, uh, in the position of being um, parodied uh, for saying over and over again. What are what are we willing to to stake our career on and say, "Yep, all right, I'm uh, I may be repetitive about that, but it's worth it." Uh, you know, and I which is I so different from a soapbox. You know, like yes. oh, there he goes <laughs> off again on that that one thing he hates. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah, and but in in order to for preachers to say. Um, okay, I know that in certain, you know, and every preacher has this, I'm sure musicians uh, could actually, uh, the musicians who sit through these services could help every preacher to say, um, what are those things that are my, <laughs> that are my key uh, uh, pet projects or mm -hmm. my, my soapbox yeah. uh, elements, uh, but you know, and uh, for preachers to actually be more conscious to say, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm glad that that's one of those things that people I have identified uh, as one of the things that I re uh, repeat over time, because I think it's really important. And yeah, I, yeah, I, like, 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 kind of like choosing your yeah. your repetition of like, like the the large scale repetition is like, oh well, you know, God loves us, and we need to love our neighbors, and mm -hmm. the, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is. Yeah, so. choosing what what are the things that you repeat over time, and and just being more conscious of that, and and thinking that's actually how formation happens. Um, yeah, we yeah. don't like sometimes we have these lightning mo moments. But for the most part, what is it? You know, salvation, you know, I'm, I, I am saved. I'm being saved. Well, we yeah. are being saved over the course of our lives. And one way that we experience that salvation is through the ongoing yes. with the word and through the preaching. And yes, yes, absolutely. You know? And well, and uh, one of the things that then musical repetition, I talked a little bit about this, too. Uh, when when we really think about what virtues it can promote, um, the idea of patience, you know, and yeah. Uh, something I saw the uh, word idolatry and I was like, Ooh, right. High stakes here. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I think, uh, I think maybe for a good reason there, uh, and you can, you can check me on this as far as your own reading, but the idolatry of instantaneousness, uh, I had to think about that in my own life. Um, and, uh, you know, this is something in our culture that, uh, the music in a, in a way can help us to think about how uh, music in order to be what it is, it takes time. It's not like other arts where they can just be displayed and you can see the whole thing at a moment uh, in order to see the whole thing or to hear the whole thing. It takes time. And uh, wow, that's the same thing as my own life with God and the way that uh, the spirit shapes me over time uh, as I, you know, I, I, I titled that chapter or subtitled it, uh, sanctification through hearing. No, I titled, that was the title. Yeah. Me, um, repetition, uh, uh, because being, uh, shaped over time, uh, really it, you can't, you can't fast forward through that. And you do have those moments of insight, uh, but over time and, or, or think about this. So you talked also about how, uh, there's, uh, something as a musician that can seem so predictable and cliche maybe, and yet it strikes you in its beauty at that time. Well, but 
one of the things that you're doing there is you're putting yourself in the position to have that strike your trace. And, uh, and that comes uh, with a lot of maybe banal moments along the way uh, where uh, music, where preaching, where we could say discipleship or serving others, where that can feel very banal. And yet you can have those moments, uh, those flashes of insight where things can shift for you, but it's not going to come unless you're willing to do those things repetitively, uh, repeatedly over time. This is making me think about um, how, um, not just in preaching, but I'm thinking specifically of music, how, okay, if you listen to a symphony and you've got 30 minutes or whatever, and and then you get to the payoff and it's big and it's loud or whatever, mm-hmm. and in a way you've earned it. You've, you yeah. have, you've have had the patience you have, you've gone through the scherzo and you've gone through the, this, and then now you have your big, big final movement. And oftentimes in a choir anthems that I try not to, to program, but sometimes I do, you've got your three minutes, your four minutes, mm-hmm. and they try to do the same thing over the course uh, of four minutes. And yeah. to me, what it ends up happening is like a really cheap, like, you know, we tried to try to make that big feeling happen. Mm. But actually, it's really hard to make that big feeling happen in that really short period of time. And not that it can't, not that people can't be primed in other ways. But I feel like um, sometimes when we're trying to rush through things, it's like, well, you know, I want, you know, I've got my service or I've got my music and I want to have this feeling and I want to have that feeling and I want to have that feeling and I want to do it in 30 minutes or whatever. Mm. And uh, that's not how our bodies work. And it's not how our, like, we are timely people. I was mm. trying to explain this to my five-year-old just yesterday when he was like, uh, as, you know, the, the weight of the world is too much sometimes and time and what is time? And I'm like, well, you know, time is for people and not for God. And God is outside of time. And okay, you know, that's, this is an ongoing conversation. Um, but, you know, for real, God is outside of time and God meets us in time. Yeah. And, um, and by the way, one of my best friends uh, produces the Time Eternal podcast. If that interests you, she talks wow. about this every single week. Time Eternal. It's a good okay. podcast. I'll um, check it out. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but um, when when I think about like this, uh, this thing of patience and the resistance to idolatry, and we just, we want to, in our culture and how we want to just check the box. Okay. I got that feeling. I got this thing. I met God here. Okay. God come right now. I'm here for three minutes. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> can feel like that. Um, yeah. and, you know, not that we have to spend all day, but of course, it, some of it is about attitude mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and an approach to that that uh, that time that we've intentionally set aside to worship God. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that's I, that's an important insight there. I um, that really is making me think about. Yeah, you noticed that there are things that a form, let's say a certain form, um, as in a three or four minute choir anthem, we could also say worship song. If it tries to uh, produce a feeling that it just, uh, that may actually take more time, uh, to be able to, and an effect, uh, a formative effect, we might say, uh, that, uh, that there's a certain impatience then uh, that can uh, unfortunately then be modeled if we're not careful in the way that we think about worship music. I, I, don't, I don't think I've thought about that before, but you're you're right. There, there's almost a discipline of uh, regularity of mm-hmm. um, that, that you have to just kind of make peace with. And, uh, and, and that's how relationships work. You know, that's how human relationships work. You have to put in the time um, your, your son may 
in 12 years, think back on what mom was trying to teach him about uh, time and eternity and have a flash of insight. And it's because you were willing uh, to to walk him through that. And for years and and, years. (laughs) Yeah. And and Mm -hmm. actually talk about that in those moments uh, with him when. Yeah, I'm thinking about how some of this with with the um, the repetition and the patience Mm -hmm. some of this is to even to say, I believe God is here, even if I don't feel that special feeling. Um, and I think mm-hmm. most of us who are in spiritual spaces, we, we know what that feeling is, but yeah. we don't feel it all the time. And even if, you know, all the music is just in the right way, you know, especially like in, you know, for on the music side, you know, we, we know how to make people feel the feels we know how to, you have loud and then you have something, you, you know, we, we know how to do this. Um, but at the same time, like that isn't the same as encountering God in, in a way that feels mm. special real, but, but we believe it. Like yeah. I think most of us believe that that we can do this. It just isn't every single time. And it isn't in that predictable, I pressed play and three minutes in, I felt God. <laughs> That's yeah. not how it works. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But there's a lot of worship music, that, a lot of preaching that tries to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make them start crying at this at this minute. And, and I mean, I grew up with sermons like that, where it's just like, I mean, okay, I got what they were doing, but sometimes it was like, okay, this is really, um, really excessive and we can see what's happening. (laughs) Great. Yeah. And it feels manipulative. Like that's, I think it's actually what I'm trying to get at is, oh, at at the end of the day, if you think I'm going to press play and I'm going to make people feel this, and then this is going to happen and then they're going to encounter God. Well, that's, that's manipulation. Yeah, absolutely. Not that you can't craft. Of course we can craft. Right. But yeah. I, I think, um, right, uh, be, that the, the phrase that I borrowed from uh, Roger Scruton to, uh, to uh, characterize when you can uh, pick out like a cliche is when a, a music, musical device is borrowed but not earned. Um, and, uh, and then also you think in preaching too, uh, the same sort of thing when, this, when the resolution to the problem comes on the cheap. And when there just seems to be, yeah, there, and, and you really need to to watch out for that. Um, I, I'm the, it, it almost feels like to me to be able to hold together as a musician or as a preacher, uh, at, to be able to hold together these uh, simultaneously a recognition of the power and the potential of, of your art form or your craft and how that can be used in God's service, but also not an expectation that that power will always be used by God's spirit in every setting uh, with every person in a predictable way. There has to be a willingness to kind of let go of that and uh, to, to hold those two things together, uh, to, to be willing to um, risk some of the the actual great powers of these of these forms, and then also to let go of uh, needing to always see the outcome <laughs> right then and there. I think that goes back to the whole like the for faith formation that we've been talking about, where like that that is your lifetime of being saved, and you kind of have to be willing to stay on that road, knowing that it doesn't always feel the way it felt yesterday or will feel tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, and every um, every musician. Uh, can relate to that feeling of being in the practice room and not wanting to be there 
Uh, <laughs> oh, me? Never, never. <laughs> right? uh, but if you don't put in that time, you know, you know, the feeling's not there that day, but if you didn't put in that time um, over, you would lose out on the potential for uh, what, what can happen through that, uh, those moments. Yeah. And that's how faith works. That's how relationships work. Mm-hmm. That's how life works. I want to, like how God made us to be what I know. Right. And I want to, I want to, my culture of instantaneousness that's formed me wants to resist that wants to push mm-hmm. against that and look for the quick resolution and the, the easy fix, the life hack, the mm-hmm. spiritual hack that'll get me to that next level faster. And uh, and I think there's something really great that musicians and preachers can help us uh, be reminded of each day that, that doesn't work like that. All right. Can I read you something? Uh, so you have a chapter on teleology at the ends of the sermon. And you say, preachers should consider how they might best preach in a way that listeners learn to long for and expect to hear the cadence of the gospel. The pleasing homiletical resolution of God's grace to the tension of the world's trouble that has been building in the sermon. Of course, special caution must be taken to ensure that these gospel resolutions do not come on the cheap. What? We've been talking about this. Um, And thus become theological cliches leading to a sentimentalized face. Mm, leading to a sentimentalized faith. Nonetheless, the triumph of God's grace over the powers of sin and death must not be muffled or unclear. Hmm. I mean, there it is right there. But like, can you tell us how you're thinking about teleology and the end of the sermon and how this, how that plays out for you? Sure. Uh, Well, one of the things that music needs uh, in order to feel like it's going somewhere is uh, a sense of tension and resolution. Now, uh, our really experienced listeners uh, and musicians might quibble with me uh, on the levels of tension and resolution that are necessary and how those things are achieved. But still, that's the basic form of how music shapes time, Um, home, away, and home again. Uh, you are uh, you have an equilibrium, you upset the equilibrium, and then you achieve a resolution. Now, one of the things that uh, Eugene Lowry, who's uh, a homiletician, who is also a musician, has been so um, strong in talking about over the years is this same uh, idea. Uh, some people have even characterized it uh, over the years as the Lowry loop. You uh, you start by upsetting the equilibrium that your listeners are coming in uh, in with. And that could be uh, theological or how they interpret uh, God's action in their lives or, you know, just uh, b- basically naming some of the, the real tensions and brokenness and fallenness or whatever word we want to use there to describe uh, these things that are uh, going wrong in our own lives, in our communities, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, and to really wrestle with those things, to wrestle with the text almost, to wrestle with um, those moments where we're trying to figure out what is God up to? Um, where is God? What's going on here? And then bringing uh, the congregation through a process of attention and resolution in, in a sermon that ultimately points to uh, a teleological, uh, in, in the case of a sermon, it could also be an eschatological hope of, uh, of saying that the sermon, even in the end, uh, can resolve in a certain sense, but also leave listeners appropriately longing for the resolution that has not yet come to this world's 
the old age that has not yet uh, shifted over to the new age of God's new creation. And so it's that sense in which uh, the teleology uh, teleology of music can actually teach preachers to... uh, to lean into the tension at sometimes, maybe more than they have been uh, taught or are comfortable with originally. And in the same way that uh, musical resolution can help kind of model uh, the hope of the gospel, uh, we can also think about the way that uh, sermons can help to to witness, not not again, not necessarily to uh, tie it in a bow, and and now it's all it's all done and it's all resolved, uh, but still that longing and the hope, the hope which combines uh, a lament for the, the world's current state and uh, a confidence in God's promises. I sometimes feel like it works like a chapter in a book, and we don't mm-hmm. have the end of the book, but we can get to the end of the chapter and there, or the end of the paragraph even, and it's like, okay, here's a complete thing, but is not complete in and of itself. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it requires more, but it still is a thing. Yeah. I like that. That's a great way to think about it. You, you, a chapter in itself can be sort of a standalone unit. And yet to think about each, uh, as each, each sermon in this case, as adding a, a further chapter in the story, which is ongoing, it gets the the metaphor gets a little bit muddled there when um, people people like Sam Wells and um, Tom Wright have kind of talked about how, in, in a certain sense, we are given uh, the the last chapter, as it were. Uh, it, uh, the the Bible uh, speaks of uh, as, our eschatological hope in the new creation and gives us images of what that will be like, uh, and so we're kind of adding the chapters in the in the middle that uh, speak to this uh, last chapter, uh, but that, uh, that in, in itself can be a really good way to understand what we're doing in sermons is we're, we're continuing to add chapters that fill out the story and help us live in time toward that ultimate end. And even, even uh, I'm thinking like, okay, we know Harry Potter lives at the end. Well, how do we get there? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, right. like, okay, we can, you know, uh, you know, not to cheapen the gospel or whatever, but, you know, we have these things in our, in our uh, cultural consciousness where like, we, we have a sense, you know, they're going to, the detective is going to live through the episode of the television show. Right. Like we know that this is going to happen. And yet how does, how, how do we get to where, where we're going? Yeah. Hmm. Well, right. And, and one of the things uh, that musicians are really great at are like, you know, most people uh, who have, been uh, acculturated in the tonal system of Western classical music or even um, Western pop music uh, know that there's an expectation of some sort of harmonic resolution at the end. And it doesn't always happen like that, but there's still, even those resolutions that aren't resolutions have a hint towards uh, they they work because they hint towards what you were expecting, which is to kind of be back at the tonic or or however however we get there. But one of the things that great musicians know how to do is is how to prolong that moment and uh, prolong that sense of tension and longing, and that's what makes music listenable too. Is how to to lean into those uh, tensions and resolutions, and uh, to combine predictability and surprise. I thought your point about cadences, I had 
it's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, that's right. I hadn't thought about it. How cadence, uh, you know, it's it's uh, the the dominant the dominant is so much more common than the tonic. The yeah. the the wanting to to find resolution is such a bigger part of the of music, like statistically speaking, than yeah. that we got we got to home base. Um, yeah, I know. I that was I was one of the like. I'm not sure that before I did the before I did the research for this. Uh, for this book that I knew that. And so it was one of the really cool things because there's this debate in preaching um, that I talked about a little bit uh, between Paul Scott Wilson and Eugene Lowry. And this can really seem like inside baseball kind of stuff that nobody really cares about, but that, but it was about how much repetition of the good news do you need in order to create in listeners over time, this formative effect of trust in God's promises, trust in God's action. And Paul Scott Wilson was saying, you should have a 50-50 balance basically over time of law and gospel or, you know, of the 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 trouble or the bad news and the, the good news in the resolution. And uh, Eugene Lowry was saying, I'm not sure that that's the best measure. And one of the reasons he was saying that is because you need to take into account the context in which these things are being being proclaimed. It's not just this static message that arrives to us. A preaching takes time. And so you can think about uh, the resolution of the gospel as coming as like the cadence, and it can still have actually this great power, even if it would be statistically speaking, less pronounced or less regular of an element in preaching, but where it comes after uh, this elongation of the the dominant chord, the uh, the the five chord, the the tension of sitting in that tension, waiting for that resolution, um, that can still have a really powerful effect. And you, you and I think the musical metaphor there really can help uh, preachers think about how all those things work in in a different way. Because mm-hmm. even if even if you don't know what those words particularly mean, you know that experience just from listening to. Whatever, whatever is the music that you love, um, unless it's minimalist, um, you know, you, yeah. you, you know, you know what it feels like to, to have that tension and to be waiting for the, for yeah. the, that home base. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like you said, you don't know how you're going to get there too. And um, so and that's part uh, of the fun. That's, that's one yes. why we listen to it. That's why we, why we live in these, these time bound forms. Yes, absolutely. Um, yep. So let's, uh, let's go back to where your book starts, which is in uh, synchrony. Yeah. And can you talk about what that means? Um, and you talk about it through the lens of two different uh, preaching traditions and how what we see on the surface might not be how people are experiencing things. Yes. Right. So synchrony, a basic definition that I use is just uh, sort of the the uniting of disparate temporalities, like individual temporalities. We each kind of are running on our own sense of time when we enter a space um, into a common temporality. So this is one of the, the things that music does so powerfully. It's one of the main reasons that a lot of people sing in choirs is because you have this sense of uh, unity, synchronization, uh, but the ability to synchronize to a beat is one of the ways that uh, music most uh, most visibly, most tangibly does that, creates that synchrony. Uh, preaching can't quite do that uh, as much for the most part. Um, I was just looking uh, more recently at some research that sought to discern whether or not it was the case that speech 
creates a, um, a isochrony or a, a, a regular beat, uh, a meter. And for the most part, uh, speech does not do that, even though it may have metrical elements that seem kind of analogous to uh, musical meter, it, uh, speech rhythms are different. However, one of the really uh, fascinating things when you look at different preaching traditions, especially when you compare white mainline uh, preaching uh, by and large, or the sort of the broad contours of that preaching tradition and African-American black preaching traditions, um, that uh, one of the, especially the black homileticians and preachers that write most powerfully about this, call attention to the deliberate use of musicality in speech patterns in order to create that musical moment. And a lot of people, if they don't know anything about uh, black preaching or African-American church traditions, um, still know that, that they, they have oftentimes been exposed to uh, this sense of rhythm and tonality being used in such a way that there's a communal participatory moment that happens in, in preaching and in those congregations. And uh, one of the really cool things that I uh, draw out in the book is how uh, preachers in a lot of those traditions are thinking in specifically musical terms about what they're doing and how their preaching is operating. And they're thinking specifically, especially performative, for performatively uh, about how to draw together uh, their content with uh, the form of their sermon in, in order to draw people in and to uh, use the call and response uh, method of uh, a communal preaching moment and how that then becomes more than just sort of a single performance, uh, but it also draws the, the worshiping congregation in. And then I talked about the difference between um, what you see in most white uh, mainline uh, homiletical traditions, there's still an element which uh, you, that you could identify as creating a, a communal synchrony. You're, you're syncing people up, but it's happening uh, more on the level of content, typically with the way that white preachers and homileticians think of it. You're, it's more like what we were talking about uh, just earlier about creating a narrative sense, a sense of, of flow in the content, a sense of movement, uh, movement from itch to scratch is sometimes how it, it has been described. And that would be thought of in a lot of those con um, white mainline congregations and white mainline preachers, uh, less in terms of how that happens with a musical speech rhythm uh, and more in terms of how that happens in the unfolding of sermon content in the shaping of time on that level. So uh, when, when you look out on, a, a, let's say, a typical uh, mainline, um, white mainline congregation, and you don't see a whole lot of oral, aural, uh, the kinesthetic participation in the preaching moment, that isn't to say that you still don't have synchrony there. It's just happening in a, on a different level, and there's a different um, of, uh, style of engagement from your listeners. You pointed that out in the context of like uh, thinking about different ways of participating in music. And if you hear a symphony concert in a symphony hall, um, you know people are going to frown at you if you clap at the wrong time. <laughs> um, whereas, like if you're at a pop concert, you know you're supposed to be making noise. But it yeah. doesn't mean people in the symphony hall aren't paying attention or enjoying it or. Um, you know, feeling the feels like it just looks different. 
Yes. The, the visual is different. Yes. Yeah. And so the, the listening culture that has developed over, over time in uh, the Western uh, concert hall classical music tradition is one in which you, you may have those ur- urges to uh, be more kinesthetically engaged, but you learn to suppress them because that's the culture of that. Uh, uh, that's a listening culture. But that, yeah, like you said, that does not mean that uh, there's no synchrony there, that there's no uh, communal moment of being enraptured. And oftentimes you can measure that uh, as one of my uh, preaching professors used to say, you can measure that by hearing the hush, uh, you know, the enraptured attention of uh, of a crowd uh, where you literally kind of are are so enwrapped in what's going on that you're you you takes your breath away a little bit. But that's a different style uh, of engagement uh, than yeah, the rock concert or the club or. Uh, the uh, uh, or other musical listening uh, cultures and traditions uh, where you're engaged in a much more uh, kinesthetic way. And, and in those uh, in those settings, you can see more visibly, of course, uh, the, the way in which people are syncing up and uh, sharing a, a communal moment. I feel like so much of this is um, coming back to how did God make us to be? And, and using that to, for faith formation through, through the preaching of the word, like, you know, God made us as, you know, in this way, in this way, in that way. And here's how we experience time. And here's how we experience, um, you know, teleology. Here's how we, we experience these things in the broad contour. And so how did we use that given that yeah. God made us this way? Yeah, absolutely. Really right. wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh-huh. Yeah. And not to shy away from those things, mm-hmm. uh, uh, not to again, not to use those things in a manipulative way, but to say these are tools that God has given us. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the really cool things that I uh, draw upon then in the synchrony chapter uh, is this work that's been done on um, a biblical uh, interpretation of uh, what musicians often point to as like their reason why you should value me. Um, those those verses in. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians, uh, talking about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, but uh, Stephen Guthrie has done some really great interpretive work showing that those are not throwaway verses that are just kind of stuck there in the middle, and uh, they come and they go, and there's not a greater significance to them. He, he talks about in the context of those verses, that is quite literally one of the ways that we are bound together by the Spirit, that we are formed by the spirit. And so he calls his chapter, uh, the wisdom of song. And, uh, and what is that wisdom that the spirit uses, uh, through congregational song. And when you see that, um, and then you see how uh, preaching can be musical too, uh, you can see one, uh, one more way that, uh, you can think in terms of a, of a preacher, uh, as a worship leader, as a musician, on how your work participates in in the work of formation in people's lives. Oh, it is good. Thank yeah. you for this conversation. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited that you as a musician uh, were willing to engage it uh, because I think there's, there's so many connections that can be found uh, between uh, preachers and musicians. But a lot of times those, those relationships there's just a sort of a mutual incomprehension that can happen. And so I, I hope that my book can help uh, stimulate more congreg- uh, conversations and working together. 
can find show notes for this episode at musicandthechurch.com, where you can also find lots of resources, including my weekly newsletter and podcast for church staff, Getting to Nimble. If you've enjoyed this show, please share it with your colleagues. The best way for them to find it is by word of mouth. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza.